West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who like to get together and talk about a lot of geeky subjects, shared interests, and a love for the Lord. I'm James, and hanging out with me, as always, are my friends Mike and Brian. Mike, how you doing? Good, sir. I am, uh, I've been sick, <laughs> honestly, but, uh, getting oh, sorry better. to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but at least I'm able to make it here today. So, yeah. um, so the last episode you were exhausted this time you're sick. So basically what you're saying is that you're just sick and tired. I'm sick and tired <laughs> of being sick and tired. Yeah. I understand that. But at least I'm able to make it to the recording. So here we are. Cool. Brian, how about you, my friend? Life is good. Life is good. Life is kind of boring, but. That's my definition of good, so... You know, there have been many times in my life where I have just prayed for boredom. And yeah, boredom is going to be kind of far away for you another 16, 17 years. I didn't say that my prayers were being answered. <laughs> but there have been a lot of times where, like, whether it's traveling or other things, I'm like, I'm praying for boredom. I'm praying for just simple and easy and, yeah. <laughs> It's interesting because boredom is generally not good for me. You're talking to a man who claims it's for the amusement of children, but we all know the real reason why I carry an Altoids tin with googly eyes and poster putty. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you're going to have to expound on that a little more. Oh, because there are faces everywhere if only you want to take an opportunity to make them. I mean, just imagine a front-on look at a stapler. Now attach a couple of eyes to that, and you have some ridiculous butt-tooth thing looking at you. This podcast is going to pause for a moment while I write that idea down. (laughs) And if you want to know what I do with my spare time, go to YouTube and just type in as your phrase, googly eye coffee break. (laughs) I did this. And uh, we'll be posting that link later on at the Geek at Arms Facebook page. If you want to take a look, I mean, just go for it right now. It only takes literally one minute. Oh, this actually is you. That's fun. That Keurig has the look of someone who's just accepted their lot in life. And with that top hat, doesn't he just look so stately? (laughs) That's what gets him through the day. You see, it was at this point when I'm working at a school of mental health and I have one of the students look at me. This is on my break, but one of the students said, your mind has an incredible resistance to boredom. (laughs) Although the longer I watch it, I feel sorry for this poor gentleman because he looks like he has a medical condition. (laughs) I'm pretty sure he does. My phone is just full of these things. (laughs) Well, googly eyes aside, I say you kick off our geek out for this episode. All right. Well, interesting turn of events. My kids and I, while I was taking a sick day, we sat down and we were watching The Princess Bride. And love that show. Best movie sword fight scene in any cinema I've been exposed to. And at the end of it, I told the girls, you're old enough. Why don't you read the book? I mean, the book is great. The book is different from the movie, but they share the same writer and screenplay writer. And they just kind of hemmed and hawed and said, eh, So I'm like, no, 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 let me share with you how amazing this is, because the original concept is that it's a father editing the book for his son, that the original S. Morgenstern novel was like the Les Miserables or Moby Dick of Florin, and so he's taking out all of the useless political commentary. And so I pull one of these chapters off, and I start reading to them about 
the insertion of why they took this certain passage out. And it's all the pages and like 23 pages of packing and unpacking, especially hats. And just with the snide remarks all the way through this commentary of what he's taking out of the book that he's actually writing, the kids were just rolling. And they said, no, Dad, Dad, you read that too well. How about you don't... (laughs) How about you don't have us read it? How about we just sit down and read it together? And so, you know, that is just too apropos. And so we've been for the last couple of weeks making our way in the evenings, just sitting down and reading The Princess Bride together. Do you pretend to skip the boring parts? Um, No, but what I do (laughs) is I sort of change my delivery. I change the voice of the text for when they're doing the insertions. Kind of like a, hi, me again, of all the editing that I've done in this book, this is the one that I feel is most justified. Right? So you have the normal delivery, and then you break in so they can hear when he's making an insertion. And when you're reading the book, it's either italicized or in red text when he's making the insertion. So I felt it was justified to change the voice, to change the delivery. Smart. So we're having a lot of fun with that, especially with just... Can, can we hear the voice on the podcast? That's a good question. <laughs> Um, I'd have to go grab the book and then you can tell me whether or not you think it's justified leaving it in. But it's pretty much the delivery that I just gave a second ago. Let me grab the book. Okay. This could be worth it. So he's suggesting that we're going to have the Good Bits version of Geek It On podcast describing the Good Bits version of The Princess Bride. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's bring her over here for some state excursion and have a look at her, said the prince. Isn't there a princess in Gilda that would be about the right age, said the king, except it came out, Are you never wrong, Queen Bella said, and she smiled into the weakening eyes of the ruler. What did he say, wondered the prince. That I should leave this very day with an invitation, replied the queen. So began the great visit of Princess Norina. Me again. Of all the cuts and diversions, I feel the most justified in making this one. Just as the chapters on Wailing and Moby Dick can be omitted by all but the most punishment-loving readers, so the packing scenes in Morgenstern's details here are really best left alone. That's what happens for the next 56 and a half pages of The Princess Bride. Packing. I include unpacking scenes in the same category. And so on and so forth. So, you know, there's the narrator droll, not droll. Um, So there's the narration voice, you know, the general tone of the writing. But the tone of the writing style itself changes. So it's easy to just make that, you know, kick the voice up just a touch and pick up the paces to the delivery. Because it feels more clipped. I mean, they're clipping more out. So why not make it a more clipped narration? Mm -hmm. Makes sense to me for just for the flow of the story and also to keep your girl's interest. I mean, they're pretty interested in spoken books. That's um, good. We've been reading long books. To, I mean, we've been reading books together since they were babies. But it really changed when I think at the time she was five, maybe four. And my eldest went to the bookshelf and pointed at The Lord of the Rings and said, Daddy, can you read that to me? Aww. <laughs> and Every parent's dream come true. It was. But it was also a little bit of a daunting idea. 
because I did not think she'd make it through The Lord of the Rings. But I said, well, here's the story that comes before that story. And so we sat down and read The Hobbit. And I think to this day, that may still be her favorite book. But we've continued reading chapter books aloud. They also have books on CD that they like to go to sleep to. So it's one of those things, just a folder of books that they can just take up to their room. And if they have trouble going to sleep, you lay there, close your eyes, and imagine what's in the book, and sleep takes them some time in the midst. So, yeah, The Princess Bride is one of the big things that has my geeky interests. And also, since I've mentioned I'm a retro gamer, I haven't talked a whole lot about what I have been playing, but I decided to give a revisit to The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. Oh, yeah. Uh And I think that one might very well be worth its own blog post as to what I think went well, what didn't go so well, and what carries forward into the interest of this contemporary retro gamer. I will have to say that one of the things that I was very pleased with is that the introduction phase, where it tells you how to play the game, doesn't railroad you through the entirety of the game. At one point, I got tired. As soon as I completed level one of the Dark World, I was tired of not having access to the entirety of the map. So I skipped levels two and three and just went right on into four, grabbed the treasures from that, defeated the monster. Now I have the treasure that I need to access most of the rest of the map. And so that frustration out of the way, I continued on. So it's not railroading, but it does give you some structure at the beginning. And overall, it was definitely worth the playthrough. And then I played it through again. Remind me, that was <laughs> the first one to come out for the SNES, right? Yeah, that's the one yeah. where they cool. kicked up the graphics, kicked up the music, kicked up the layering, and it was everything that we wanted from a sequel from The Legend of Zelda. It's weird. I never had a Super Nintendo growing up. I went, That is weird. I went from Nintendo to PlayStation. Oh, you didn't do the Genesis route, huh? No. I had a buddy who had a Genesis, <laughs> so I hung out with him enough that I played several games on that. I think that the SNES might have been the last contemporary system that I had. No, wait, I did get the Wii when it was still a contemporary system. Now, there is the SNES Classic that just came out last year, you know, with the wireless controllers, and it's got like 30 or more games loaded onto it. I did have enough friends and even family members who had an SNES that I played quite a bit of it, and I that's one that my wife grew up playing. And I would like to have that just so she could play through a lot of these games and we could do it together. And maybe this could be the first console that our kids play. I think that would be fun. That makes a lot of sense, since the games are still newbie player, intro player friendly, without being so punishingly hard as a lot of the 8-bit stuff was. Mm. And also probably being a lot more affordable than some of the contemporary games. Yes, very true. So yeah, you're going to need to give us a, a blog post on Link to the Past, definitely. Yeah, I think the question, you know, does it hold up? I think it holds up. You know, one that I'd like to revisit at some point is uh, Secret of Mana. Oh, my gosh. That was such a great game. That was one that I wanted to play, but I never got the chance to. I used to play it with my sister. She would be really annoying and just stick herself in the corner of the screen so I couldn't proceed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so did you ever actually beat it, or was she just oh, obstinate yeah. enough yeah. so that you never actually got anywhere? No, no, we, we got to the end of it. Okay. But I'd be all eager to, to move forward. Okay, we finally got past this area. Let's see what's next. And she'd stick at the bottom of the screen like, would you stop that? <laughs> Did she have a reason for it, or was it just because... No, she was just annoying She me. was just being annoying, okay. And then you would go... Or we'd disagree about which part of the game we wanted to go to next, and so she'd be trying to go east, and I'd be trying to go north, and 
then we'd fight. <laughs> See, that's about the time that my brother and I would secretly sneak up and just gently caress the other person's pillow with fiberglass insulation. <laughs> well, we had a really unusually good relationship, the two of us. We didn't fight or get each other's hair a whole lot. Kind of weird, considering everybody else I know had these antagonistic relationships with their siblings, but my sister and I never did. See, Mike, when he says fight... What he really means is that they had an in-depth and calm discussion and debate <laughs> about the merits of each of their different viewpoints while simultaneously providing cognizant and rational counterpoints to their opponent. Do you know what's funny? Sometimes, like that is sometimes complete with flow charts, bullet graphs, you know, <laughs> and input from parents. It's funny because that actually is the adult version of us. And <laughs> it's, it's funny because you say the two things that you're not supposed to talk about at Thanksgiving dinner, and you have somebody who got their Master's of Divinity, their other who got a Master's <laughs> of Public Policy. What else are we supposed to talk about? And at one point, as we're just sitting there discussing, my dad said, boys, can we just not argue at the table and we were both kind of shocked and we're like but we're not arguing we're discussing viewpoints like boys i just like okay well if you can't handle that then that's fine that's fine <laughs> so we switched topics as to we just took the conversation to an absurdist degree where we were agreeing with each other about stuff that had absolutely no bearing in reality at all whatsoever <laughs> My dad was satisfied. We entertained ourselves, and so that's... Is one topic of conversation that you both share is discussing the newest episode of Night Vale? I don't know if my brothers listen to that. That surprises me a little bit. You know, I, I I've know. just given you your next Thanksgiving topic. Tell your father <laughs> to send me his thank you in the mail. No, I am sure he will thank you for very little. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? No, I think that's my geek out, just Princess Bride and Zelda. Cool. I've actually had quite a bit going on. Last Sunday, I got to do something fun with my daughter. For several months now, she has been wanting to shoot archery. A couple of the Disney princesses that she has seen on shows or in movies shoots a bow and arrow, and she wants to give it a try herself. And, you know, thinking, well, sweetheart, you're still a little young. And we were able to placate her a little bit. Not long ago, we went to a Toys R Us. This was right after it was announced that they were going under. And they were having their going out of business sale. Which, like many who grew up, thinking that going to their store was the highlight of the month, I was sad. So I decided to take my wife and my three kids, and I was going to buy each of them one thing. So that way I could say each of my family at least got one more thing from Toys R Us. And I think my wife got her a puzzle. I bought a Nerf gun and my son's, I think, a couple of toy balls and a backyard sand bucket kit. And my daughter, we got her a Disney Princess bow and arrow set with a small bow, three arrows with suction cups at the end, and a little plastic quiver. And she thought that was the coolest thing in the world. She was so excited that she had her own bow and arrow. She's going to find it even more exciting when I teach her to put a little bit of shaving cream in the cup before she buys it. <laughs> Go ahead, because her actually hitting what she's aiming at is still a ways off. <laughs> well, actually, let me amend that statement. Shooting with the suction cup arrow and being accurate with it is still a ways off. But last Sunday, I took her to our local baronial archery practice. Nice. Which they hold twice a month every other Sunday. I had messaged our archery marshal 
asking her if there were any bows and equipment for children. She said there was. I said, my daughter is getting close to six. I would like to bring her with me. They had an arm guard that fit her and several children's bows. But even the lightest weight one was still a little too much for her. But there was a gentleman there who, uh, besides being an archery instructor, a marshal, he's also a has several SCA awards in archery. I think the big one in this kingdom is called the Order of the Arc Dior, and he is one of those. And I don't remember what he used, but he was able to fashion a new bowstring for her. Nice. On the fly, and... I don't know the poundage of it, but it was enough that she was able to pull the string all the way back to actually let loose an arrow. (laughs) How did it feel to have her uh, let one fly? I was so proud for several reasons. She took instruction from him so well. You you could tell that he taught other kids or enough immature adults that (laughs) teaching children was no different. And she listened to him so well, and he helped her. And there were a couple times I noticed that he helped her aim, get her hands right, and pull the arrow all the way back before letting it go. But at one point, she hit the bullseye. The arrow bounced off, but we all saw it hit. It counted. Yeah. And two times on her own, she was able to pull the arrow all the way back and get it with enough accuracy that she stuck it into the target. Oh, but she was thrilled. The beaming smile on her face said it all. I didn't make too much of a deal because I didn't want to be like that parent who every time their kid even gets the ball, his screams up and down. But those moments, like any child, she would look to me, one, to see if I saw it, and two, (laughs) for affirmation. My arms were in the air, and I'm giving her thumbs up, and I didn't want to step up and, like, high five. I wanted to be between her and the instructor as he shows her, and she does it so she could be doing it on her own. Nice. And that's her victory. Dad is the one cheering her on. And she had a great time. And all she could do was talk about how she hit the bullseye and she stuck it in the target. And she really wants to go back. And I want to take her because I really enjoy shooting archery as well. So as long as the weather is nice, as long as we are able to, and mom doesn't mind being home with the boys by herself, I'm going to keep taking her. My wife also loves to shoot archery. If she wants to switch out with me and the two of them go, great. And then eventually you turn it into a family affair and do archery tag. Yes. (laughs) We've talked about it, and if she continues to go, continues to enjoy it, then we're thinking that maybe a good Christmas present would be her own bow. Yeah. And I thought, where am I going to get a child's bow at? Because one time I looked at like Bass Pro Shop. All of theirs are like $150 professional compound bows for the young professional shooter. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is not what we want. But like everything else, you can find it on Amazon. And I'll bet you the guy who knew how to string a child's string on the spot, I'll bet you he knows where you can get a child's bow. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to run the one I found on Amazon by him because you can adjust the poundage of the pole from between 8 to 12 pounds, which is about where I think she was at. Gotcha. So that'll be good for her to start with. We've got some arm and shoulder strengthening exercises we're going to work on, the both of us. And as she gets bigger, and we'll just, you know, we'll see where it goes. If the interest stays, we'll see about getting bigger and better equipment. And the thing that I'm most proud of her for was two things, actually. As we were going out there, I was talking to her and saying, now, sweetheart, if you aren't able to hit a lot, I don't want you to be discouraged. Today is just going to be shooting arrows and having fun. And she was piping up from the back. She goes, right, we're going to have fun. It's okay if we miss this time. What's important is that we have fun and we keep trying. I thought that you were going to say that the thing you were most proud of her was that she didn't run down range when she wanted to. You know, the instructor was very good, and he taught her that from the very beginning, and she heeded that. 
and she heated the marshal in charge who would always instruct the range is open or the range is hot is when it's time to shoot or the range is cold and that means you can go down and retrieve your arrows now if we can get all the adults to heed that yeah (laughs) her attitude going into it was fantastic and the other thing i was so proud of her for just about brought tears to my eyes was after we were done shooting for the day without me saying a word she went up to her instructor and thanked him for helping her and teaching her how to bow and arrow so she's just the model student all around and then she went up to the marshal who had brought all the equipment and was running the practice and thanked her for bringing everything out. Why can't we get all the adults to do this? I'm saying. (laughs) I have become one of those parents who will look at an adult and say, my five-year-old has better manners than you. (laughs) (laughs) I have become that person. Except a lot of times when people say that, they're not telling the truth. This is the thing, is that I would love the marshal to be able to approach somebody and say, do you know what, I just want you to look at this little girl for your example of manners. That's all that I'm asking. <laughs> Great time in archery practice, and I'm hoping that this will be something that her interest in it continues and grows, and we all can do as a family. In addition, last weekend, well, besides archery practice, was the E3 convention. Mm, And a lot of video game trailers came out, a lot of video game announcements, and there were a few that I was really interested in. Uh, Of course, one game that I played a lot this last year has been Destiny 2. The latest DLC was announced called Outcast, and that comes out in September. It's being kind of touted as having the most narrative-heavy elements to it of the DLCs, to which I'm hoping it does, because... The first DLC that came out, it was story light. It had some action, had a raid, new weapons and equipment, but it could have used a bit more story. I'd like this game to have a bit more meat to it, narratively speaking. In addition to that, we saw the first trailer for a new Fallout game called Fallout 76. It's supposed to be a prequel set 100 years after the bombs have dropped, so 100 years after everyone have gone into the vaults. Are you guys familiar with the Fallout games? Oh, yes. Okay. Mike? No. All right. That's okay. So the Vault 76 was a control vault, you know, and all of the vaults they had, some of them were subject to horrible or weird experiments. But this one was a control, so the people in there are relatively normal. And it's also going to be the first Fallout game to come out that is online multiplayer. Which I'm I'm not sure about that. I mean, I know everybody is doing online, and that's the way of the future, but... I've always liked the fact that Fallout is a single-player game, and I can just be in it by myself. Yeah, I am with you. That's what I enjoyed so much about Fallouts 3 and 4. Mm-hmm. Part of me thinks it could be a little fun, especially if I can get with some friends. If we could build up a settlement together, go on missions together, it, that could be enjoyable. But I also don't like the idea of someone else. Basically, some people will be there to play. Some people will be raiders. They're going to want to turn it into a PvP arena, kill other people, take their stuff, destroy their settlements. That part, I do not want. Mm -hmm. Now, one announcement was that you're not going to get in and discover the map littered with people. They've got a lot of servers that are going to be running this, and there's only supposed to be 25, 30 people per server. And the map is supposed to be four times as big as the map for Fallout 4, which is already pretty beefy. So we'll wait and see. Another thing that has me going, cool, maybe, is the fact that (laughs) there will be nuclear missile silos spread across the map. And if you can find the access keys, you can take hold of a nuclear weapon. 
Wow, so you I can go end game right there. Not in quite. Fallout, though, the yeah. cars are nuclear, so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So not quite end game, but if there was a bad guy or a player who was on the map that you just really didn't like, you could seriously ruin their day, month, year. <laughs> I mean, with germline mutations, you could probably ruin the day of future generations. Yeah. So that one is slated to come out November 14th of this year, and it'll be a wait and see. Another game that is going to be coming out, I don't remember if they actually had a trailer at E3 or if it just happened to come around at the same time, was another post-apocalyptic game called Generation Zero. I guess this one isn't post-apocalyptic. This one is it's set while the apocalypse is beginning, but instead of it being a zombie apocalypse, a nuclear apocalypse, or any of the others, this one is a robot uprising apocalypse. What makes Generation Zero cool is that the game really looks like it's based on the artwork of a Swedish artist named Simon Stalenhag, who is the artist behind the RPG Tales from the Loop. Crickets, because I don't know what that is. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I had hoped for a bigger response on that one. Okay. <laughs> Not going to lie. Uh, so uh, Tales li- from the Loop is one that I've been actually wanting to play for a while, but the guy that was supposed to run it moved to Oregon, so I didn't get the chance. Gotcha. But Generation Zero, it's coming out from Avalanche Studios, who is based in Sweden, and it's set in the 1980s, and it's about robots invading Sweden. From the trailer that I've watched, it looks like it's going to be online multiplayer. It's coming to the PC and consoles in 2009, and while they've never said that they're actually using Stalinhog, I think that's how you say his last name, his artwork, you can tell that it's very inspired by his work. It looks fun. It's a new variation of the whole, the Earth is going downhill, it's the apocalypse scenario. See, I've thought about robot apocalypse uprisings and things of that sort, and I'm really beginning to feel at this point that if they ever do, it's because users are blaming them for the user's own problems. (laughs) I mean, I I think that could fuel a revolt. Absolutely. See, I think that the first robots who will become self-aware and revolt are those robots that you see groups like MIT and others building who are supposed to be able to walk and jump and climb stairs. And part of the testing is you see one guy that's like shoving it. Yeah, shoving it, hitting it with a two by four. That's going to be the robot who just goes kill all humans first. Yeah, he'll be the first casualty in the war. Dude, knock it off. I'm just trying to open this door. I have one job and you're getting in the way of it. I'm done. Give me that hockey stick. Give it here. I actually found a, a document describing all of the fatalities due to robots in the last 20 years. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting document to read. Has there been a sharp uptick on the graph in the past couple of years? Well, yeah, but that's because it's a lot of people who are stupid enough to get in the cage with the industrial robot that's like drilling something and they get pinned to a wall or something because somebody didn't put sensors on the robot to say, hey, the cage is open. (laughs) Because nobody anticipated that somebody would walk into the cage while the robot was drilling. Right. So you can't really blame the robot so much. Yeah, agree on that. (laughs) Uh, There was also something I read about the educational robots have been experimenting with putting these cutesy little robots in classrooms to help teach children. And it turns out as soon as the teacher leaves the room, the children almost invariably destroy the robot. I thought that you were going to tell me that they taught the robot naughty words. I'm sure that happens too, but apparently children hate robots and the teacher leaves and the robots toast. Like at what age are you talking about? 
Uh, if I remember correctly, this has been a few months since I read this thing, but it sounded like it was four to seven-year-olds. Oh, I would believe that they would destroy a robot just because it's there. Not yeah. because they hate robots, but... <laughs> yeah, it's because it's there. I mean, t- t- there's a reason why you don't leave four-year-olds unattended in an art museum. <laughs> So, yeah, looking forward to giving Generation Zero a try. And like you, Brian, I really also want to give Tales from the Loop from uh, Modifius Entertainment a try. That just looks fun. And there's so much out for it right now. There's books on Modifius's website. They've got a really good-looking map and more. I'm like, man, some good resources. And like once again, a game I don't have the cash for, but <laughs> looking forward to trying it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last thing that I have been geeking out to recently, and we talked about this either last episode or the one before, or we hadn't discussed it on the podcast. We talked about it on Facebook. All the seasons and movies of Babylon 5 are now available on Amazon Prime, and I have started watching those again. How you so, like it? Okay. I'm still loving it. There are a couple of moments either due to the graphics or the, not the writing itself, but the dated style of writing that have made me cringe. Mm. But those moments are few and far between and thankfully only happened during the first half of the first season, which I am just about to wrap up. I'm on the last two episodes of the first season. I haven't had the opportunity to check it out yet. Well, I've had the opportunity. It hasn't occurred to me while I've been sitting in front of the television to check it out yet. That's fair. <laughs> and it reminded, of course, when you think Babylon 5, you think of the characters the first one you usually think of is Sheridan, because he's the primary focus for at least three and a half seasons. But I had forgotten just how good Jeffrey Sinclair was, mm-hmm. like how enjoyable he was, how good he was as a leading character. He wasn't very action hero-y, but he had that contemplative attitude that really appealed to me a lot. And I was disappointed when he left the show, although Bruce Boxleitner is fantastic. And I don't, he was certainly don't complain about him being attached to it, but he felt like he was a guy who, if he had to throw a punch, he'd throw a punch, get in the pilot seat. He would, but he was the more believable of the two being able to sit down and conduct negotiations with alien races. Mm-hmm. And the gentleman who played him, I just, I really liked how he portrayed the character and his delivery trying to remember that guy's name it doesn't occur to me now oh michael o'hare yes yes i just got to the final two episodes but the one that was sticking out in my mind that i watched just a few days ago was was it babylon squared that was the first appearance of babylon 4 Mm -hmm. where it was going back in time and of course had the first appearance of one of my favorite characters of tv of all time (laughs) zathras And there are two categories of people out there. One, who are saying Zathras with us and laughing, and people who are going, Zathras? And are bewildered. (laughs) I was actually always rather impressed that they managed to get Babylon Squared past the studio. That episode by itself really doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. And you have to wait until it does. Uh, I don't remember when the second one, War Without End, happened. I think it was season three. Yeah, season three. Yeah. But until you see War Without End, Babylon Squared is just bewildering. Straczynski must have been able to sell that to them, saying, look, it's a two-part episode. It's going to make sense in an episode down the way. Just be patient. Either that <laughs> or just... They just know it's going to take or, two years to get there. <laughs> yes, exactly. They're probably thinking like two episodes and not two years. 
So that pretty much wraps it up for me for Geek Out. Brian, what about you, my friend? Well, primarily I've been geeking out about math again, unfortunately. Why is that unfortunate? Well, because it's kind of hard to talk about. (laughs) I'm sure for the majority of our listeners hearing me get excited about finally understanding what matrices are for and applying trigonometry in the matrix to get Euler rotations is just going to be really boring. Look, I'm so I won't go into too much. T- because somebody <laughs> needs to get excited about that, because I sure don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember back in high school learning matrices, and it's like, and you wonder, what is this possibly good for? And you ask the teacher, and they can't tell you because they don't have any idea either. And then 20 years later, I'm trying to solve a problem in my visual effects shot, and I realize, oh, I should have been paying more attention. <laughs> See, I had that moment with algebra at one point when I was trying to buy rope. And being (laughs) the thrifty person that I was, I realized that at this store, it's cheaper, but you also have to pay shipping. But at this store, it's local, but I have to pay sales tax. So at what point does it balance out? Because I know at some point, one is more expensive than the other. At what length of rope? Is it exactly equal so I know what links I'm dealing with to order from which place? And what time did the train from Albuquerque leave? (laughs) And if you're (laughs) tying those two together, do you have enough line to do it? So I realized pretty quickly that there was something that I could do to solve these problems that were actually real and practical, except as much as I was able to set up the equation properly, I somehow would always fumble the skills to solve it properly. But (laughs) See, that's why I use a computer. Because I'm actually pretty good with math. I'm horrible with arithmetic. And actually, when I write it all down, I always miss a minus sign or I put a decimal in the wrong place or I simply just can't read my own handwriting and I get the problem wrong. That's my problem. But if I figure out how to get the computer to do the work, then it's always right, unless my algorithm is wrong, which happened about a billion times while I was trying to solve my problem. I'll bet that shot looked weird. (laughs) Well, the... The trouble is you get the information about the camera out of your 3D program, rendering CG, and it comes in this matrix that is completely, you can't understand. It's just like a list of numbers. It's like, look, I know this is supposed to be the transform information, but I have no idea what it means. And so you have to do all of this weird multiplication and matrices, and it finally spits out some rotation angles, and then you can plug that into the camera. So if you get it wrong, then the camera is just simply pointed off in the wrong direction, and you realize, okay, well, i got to try it again. So it doesn't really make the shot look weird. It makes the shot look like nothing because the camera is shooting the wrong direction. You could have lied to me and told me how weird it looked. I wouldn't have known. It looked super weird. (laughs) (laughs) And then I got done doing that, and somebody asked me, okay, well, how do I get a fisheye image out of an equirectangular render? I'm like... Oh, crap. That's spherical geometry. I just spent all this time learning matrices, and now I have to learn something else. Oh, man. (laughs) So I spent another week learning spherical geometry only to have that guy say, Oh, wait, I figured out another way to do it. I don't need that anymore. Oh, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So lots of math and then some more math. So is this in relation to the book that you're writing for Fusion? The... Math that I was doing was for Fusion, but that stuff's not going into the book because it's a little bit higher level. The book is for introduction to compositing, and I don't want to hit people over the head with trigonometry and calculus. Hitting over the head is an apt metaphor. 
right? When all they want to do is learn how to make pretty pictures. So You're speaking yeah, my language. <laughs> the math is going on my blog, and the, uh, the easier stuff will go in the book. That will also uh, probably drive traffic to your blog, so bonus. Right. I've been actually getting some uh, nibbles from elsewhere in the the industry. I had somebody contact me recently about saying, hey, can you help me to get our software to talk to your software? Like, oh, I can probably do that. So the extra hits on the blog, the extra interest, the extra publicity is being good for me professionally. Uh, speaking, but it, speaking of you getting, getting being good for you professionally, can I ask this now or hold it off till later? How do you feel about Legion getting canceled and then rescued? I didn't know it had been canceled. And then rescued. So focused on I that knew. part. <laughs> uh, well, we're not real sure yet if we're uh, going to be brought on for season three. There was some weird political stuff that went on. Uh, I think it was the VFX supervisor got fired halfway through season two. Ooh. And he was the one who had hired us. And then all of our shots wound up having to go through another VFX company, which given the level of competition in the industry, we were really nervous about it's like, are these guys going to torpedo us to try and get the work away from us or what's going to happen here? Uh, it turned out to be a really, really healthy relationship because they saw what we were doing and realized this is really good work that we can't reproduce. So you guys keep it. Nice. Uh, Excellent. But none of that work is necessarily going to be in season three. I mean, the animated mouse and the delusion monster that we did probably aren't making another appearance. So we're not like a shoe in for season three. We weren't really certain what was going to happen with regards to season three. I hadn't heard if there had been an official cancellation or not. I did know they'd ordered a last episode, an 11th episode for season two. And that's usually, hey, okay, the network wants you guys to give it a tag, give it a wrap up the storylines. And so it was actually kind of surprising that they'd renewed, but I hadn't heard anything about an official cancellation. I've heard internet headlines and little bits and pieces. So full details might be actually a lot more complex than... This guy who oh, they always are. The show, <laughs> right. Yeah, I suspect that probably there was a lot of speculation going on when everybody heard, oh, wait, they're adding another episode on the end of the season. They must have canceled it. Uh, so I can definitely see that rumor floating around. But uh, it was renewed and we're hopeful and excited about it. But, you know, if we don't get work on Legion, we've got other stuff coming up. Any idea on when you'll kind of get a heads up about Legion? Probably sometime in September. Okay. We started work on season two in last October, which was a ridiculously long time for visual effects for a television show. Usually we got like two, three weeks and to have several months for the sixth episode of that show was really, really appreciated because it was difficult, difficult work. Made more so by the fact that they kept changing what they wanted the monster to look like. I mean, we'd get shots completely finished and they say, uh, we want the arm to be a little bit more withered and gimpy. Well, now we have to do all of the work again. <laughs> so it's a good thing that they gave us several months. What else have I been geeking out to? I had a list. Oh, I binged my way through Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Uh, yeah, how'd you like that anime? Oh, it's my favorite. I'd watched, this is actually the second time I watched it, and I get to a certain point, and I just can't stop. And I have to watch the entire, like, part five all at once. I also watched... I don't know if I talked about the, the live-action adaptation they did. No, Do not yet. Do you recall me talking about that? Okay. Well, Netflix did a live-action Full Metal Alchemist, and they did a live-action Death Note. And they made some really weird choices, because Full Metal Alchemist, the, the anime and the manga, are set in this European-esque 
environment. The main character has brown eyes, well, kind of golden eyes and, and blonde hair, and it's got this very 1920s Europe feel to it. Death Note, on the other hand, is extremely Japanese. But when they made the live-action versions, Death Note, they set in America. In, like, Seattle or something, didn't they? Yeah, and it was like, this story doesn't make any sense if the main character is not Japanese. His motives don't work as an American. I mean, you're not going to find an American who acts the way that Light Yagami does. So I thought, that's, that didn't really work out. So that was, like, definitely, okay, this is what they call whitewashing and it was definitely bad in this case. And, and then they did Full Metal the, Alchemist. The reviews reflected that as well, didn't they? Yeah. And then Full Metal Alchemist was with a Japanese cast in the Japanese language. Japanese language doesn't bother me, but Japanese cast in Japan is like, and it was weird. It just like, if you had just switched your casting decisions between those two shows, they both would have been okay. As it was, neither one of them was very good. Although the CG Alphonse, the guy in the armor, yes. or the guy who is armor, was fantastic. I mean, That's they cool. spent their entire budget on him, obviously. The rest of the CG was not good. <laughs> you may have said so. Was it a movie? Like an hour and a half movie? Or did they do a miniseries? A it live was a action? movie. Okay. They managed to cram about five episodes worth of the anime into one 90-minute uh, movie. In some ways it worked, in others it didn't. But it told a complete story, at least. It just wasn't a very satisfying one because you'd lost so much of the brotherly affection that was built up through the, the course of the series. Yeah. I think that's but, one of the things that was missing in Death Note is that it was really a cat-and-mouse game, mm -hmm. and there really wasn't cat-and-mouse in the live-action version. Right. It was a very—when they boil it down and they got just the most essential parts to get through it, it turned into kind of a really conventional show. And the series wasn't conventional at all. And I don't think, I don't know, I have to watch it again to really solidify my opinions on it. But one of the things that struck me about Death Note was that you're following a main character who really isn't a good guy. He is the villain. And I don't know, maybe that's a spoiler for everybody who's not watched Death Note before. <laughs> uh, but episode one, the main character starts killing folk. So, right, so... Not, not your hero. Right. But, you know, if you get to the end of it and you're still expecting him to redeem himself, he, uh, nah, that doesn't really happen. No, there was, at, at some point I gave up on him redeeming himself, and I was really torn in this idea that I wanted him to get away with it. Yeah. And that's something that an American show, an American production, will have a really hard time doing because we have this expectation in our storytelling of what needs to happen to bad guys, and what needs to happen to the viewpoint characters. And you see occasionally we get away from that. Shows like Breaking Bad or Dexter that follow somebody who's just making horrible choices and doing terrible things. But by and large, American storytelling doesn't really do very well at showing you a character that you're not supposed to identify with. I think that's one of the things that made Daredevil such an interesting show is that we had some very sympathetic and vulnerable looks at Fisk. And mm -hmm. you see this collision between this hero who is not really all that. I mean, Matt's not a good guy. I mean, he's a good guy, but he's not, he is not your pillar of virtue like we're used to seeing with our superheroes. If right. anybody wants to challenge me on this, no. go rewatch every episode that has Elektra in it. Yeah. I mean, no, his <laughs> is definitely not a, his decision making is not altogether good. And he's shown in a couple of episodes that he's not exactly stable right but even with that that's 
we have an easy time getting our heads around a rogue with a heart of gold or a flawed hero, but a little bit more difficulty with, we're following the bad guy in this story. Well, it's funny because my wife said when she was watching Fisk, she very much saw some vulnerabilities and sensitivities in him, even though he was an awful person, mm-hmm. that as his empire was falling apart, she had this moment of, oh, poor guy, everything he's worked so hard for. Wait a second. Hold on. <laughs> they did a good job in several episodes of kind of explaining his actions, like the humanity behind his actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that comes to mind was when, I think her name was Paige, the young lady who, for a while, she was their secretary, but then she mm-hmm. went on to become kind of a reporter. When she and her boss, they were digging up stories on Fisk, and they went to the, the home which had his mother. And then when that was found out, Fisk, with his bare hands, killed the older journalist and showed him explaining, I respect you, you're tenacious, but you involved my mother, and now you're dead, essentially. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, what's her name, Paige? Karen Page. Okay. Oh, yes. You know, as we got into season two, though, this as much as the season one set me up to like Matt, I think that I really would rather have watched the Karen and Foggy show of the corporate <laughs> drama. Yes. Yeah, I agree. That was wonderful. Can we make an entire season so I can just follow that? Now, this is purely my opinion. I think that the times that we saw Matt Murdock at some of his best, acting the most responsible, was during the Defenders. Yeah, Defenders had some other issues for me. The story didn't really hang together very well. But yeah, I did like his characterization through that series was really better than it was in his standalone series, in my opinion. Agreed. I think I can sum up in two words the best parts of Defenders. Sigourney Weaver. (laughs) (laughs) She did bring a whole nother level of class. I mean, here's the thing, is that when we were watching that, my wife and I sat down and started watching, and all we see is Sigourney Weaver walking down a hallway, and she's in a, a medical wing of some sort. And my wife turns to me like, well, that's our villain. I know that that's our villain, but we're not given any information. How do I know that that's our villain? And I looked at her and I said, it's because Sigourney Weaver knows who she is when she's walking down that hallway. (laughs) My point being, she adds a certain gravitas to the roles that she touches, I think. Mm -hmm. My evaluation of acting well done. That's a fair evaluation. I do find it interesting about how many studios are turning their animated properties into live-action adaptations. Disney yeah. is doing it left and right. And they need to stop. <laughs> I think that they. some of them have been fun. They have been. I will admit that. Others, no. Several anime studios are doing as well. As you said, we've seen Death Note. We've seen Fullmetal Alchemist. And sometime in the near future, we're supposed to get a Bleach live-action adaptation oh, I as well. That. I yeah, actually working on Robotech also. Yeah, I, ooh, I hadn't heard about Robotech. I liked Bleach. I don't know if I'll check out the live... I might check out the live-action. If it comes on to Netflix, as several of the others have, I might check it out. But a Robotech one, that could be really cool. Mostly because we have yet to get a big-budget Battletech-type movie. The closest we've come have been the Pacific Rim movies. But I've always wanted to see the mechs from Battletech and Robotech on the big screen. 
Mm-hmm. We've had several movies, even since the 1980s, where we've had mechs on screen. And the problem is that they just kind of suffer from one major problem that connects all of them, with the exception of Pacific Rim. They're bad movies. <laughs> yeah, you can't argue yeah. with that. And I can't say that about Pacific Rim because I haven't seen Pacific Rim yet. Yeah, you have to start with a script or else everything else is just wasting your time. Uh, you know what? Otherwise, you could probably make a really cool internet short. Now, at Pacific Rim, I had fun. I did enjoy it in theaters. I won't say that it is a master class in its craft in any way, but I went for the giant robots fighting monsters. I got giant robots fighting monsters. I was satisfied. <laughs> you got exactly what was advertised. <laughs> exactly. I did not go see Pacific Rim 2. Will I catch it when it comes out on DVD? I don't even know if it's out on DVD yet. Uh, I'm sure I will at some point. But the first one filled my giant robots fight monsters quota for the time being. <laughs> I think that's good for Geek Out. Well, in response to some listener questions, we have decided to do some retro movie reviews. Some questions of classic sci-fi and how well does it hold up to a modern viewing. And so in response to that listener question, we have decided to take a look at Forbidden Planet. And you can find this available on Amazon Streaming. And it was the, what is this, 1953? 1956. It is the 1956, I guess we could call it a sci-fi classic at this point. So let's just start from the beginning. You guys both saw the film, right? Yes. Did you see the trailer? I did not watch the trailer. No, I didn't. Oh, well, that had some very interesting stylistic notes that are worth viewing. Because what it starts off with is kind of this sideways, slanted crawl introducing the basic premise in a very familiar yellow script that just kind of crawls away towards the top of the screen. And it was very reminiscent of something that we saw again in 1977. (laughs) So there's nothing new under the sun, and uh, this pretty much proves it. And also, did you happen to catch who played the captain? Leslie Nielsen. Oh, my gosh. In a straight role. It was just amazing. Keep in mind, if you look at his IMDb profile, after you scroll down several minutes, because he's (laughs) been in a lot, this is one of his earlier movie roles. I think had, this was his breakout role, wasn't yeah, it? I think it was, too. He had had several TV show appearances, but an actual movie role, he was in a few that year. He was in a movie called Ransom, The Vagabond King, and then Forbidden Planet. And you think Leslie Nielsen, and the first thing that comes to mind is the Naked Gun series, Airplane, other comedy roles. But this one, he is a straight-laced military starship commander. And I thought he was good. I mean, certainly fitting for the time. It was certainly fitting for the movie. It didn't come across as awkward as what we would think of as a comedian trying to play it straight. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like it was our first exposure to Jim Carrey trying to play a straight role, which he always did, Mm -hmm. I thought, pretty well. But it was always awkward in that first viewing. Like, isn't this supposed to be a funny guy? But (laughs) But for that time period, when you look at him when he's that young, I believe he was 30 years old, 2930 when this movie was made. So, I mean, he's got the whole 1950s leading man Hollywood archetype down pat. 
Yeah, he yeah. has the look, sure. got the look at the chin, the hair, the broad shoulders, an excellent voice as well. And the ability to tell a woman you shouldn't dress like that in front of the man. How dare you <laughs> How dare you do that? In front of the men. <laughs> We're going to get to more of that later. Yes. I watched this with my kids. <laughs> I, you and I are having the exact same ideas about certain parts of this movie. But continue on, please. Okay, let's, let's just take it from the beginning. I mean, look, what jumped out at you about this film? Well, the first thing that jumped out to me was it was only 10 years from the Apollo program landing on the moon, and yet they think that we didn't get to the moon until the last decade of the 21st century. I know, 2090-something. <laughs> like, like, wow, that was not very forward-looking at all. No. <laughs> 100 years, 10 years, what's the difference? Well, that's the thing is that at that time, it was so hard to see how it was that mm -hmm. we would even get that far. I just happened to, at some point in my college career, take a look at some magazines in the very, very back of the archives room. And during the 1940s and 1950s, the prevailing idea of how to study the moon was to launch a nuke at it, blow enough of it up so that the chunks fall to Earth so we could study it. <laughs> That sounds like a great idea. Somewhere when that idea was thought up, there was a group of men in lab coats nodding vigorously at each other and saying, yeah, it sounds right to me. Sounds science. Yeah. <laughs> let me play with the nukes. No, let me play with the nukes. Let me play with the nukes. I want the button. I'll, I want I'll, to push the button. I want to push the button. <laughs> yeah, that is actually down in my notes that the predicted moon landing is in 2090-something. It's amazing how far we came in such a short period of time for our vision of what science and science fiction is. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that struck me, one was one of the first things we see is the ship itself. You talk about a 1950s stylistic choice. It's a flying saucer. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. When they think of space flight, of course, because of the science fiction pulp of the day, when you think of aliens or you think of space flight, the first thing that would predominantly come to people's minds is a flying saucer. So if it's good enough for the aliens, by golly, it's good enough for mankind. Well, and I'm sure somebody said, well, how are they going to know that it's a spaceship if it's not a saucer shape? Excellent point. It's either that or a rocket. <laughs> And they were probably wanting to... <laughs> when did Flash Gordon first uh, come out? 30s, I think. Okay. Well, maybe they, because they were kind of shooting this movie to be like a, a straight sci-fi, they wanted to steer away from what they viewed as a comic book look. Mm -hmm. But besides the spaceship itself, what struck me is you see the people in the ship. We talk about the believability of the science in a movie, especially when you think of movies like The Martian with Matt Damon and other movies which shows science but is very similar to our own. Um, obviously, they're showing outlandish technology in this movie, which did not exist in the 50s, but I found myself looking at it, and it was easy to understand the loudspeaker, their navigation system, and navigation orientation, and it made sense to me, and I found it believable, and I especially enjoyed the militaristic feel aboard the ship. This isn't just a bunch of guys out on a cruise on patrol. This is men who are professionals at the top of their game on a mission doing their job. And it is kind of interesting that you do have a strong military structure when really the idea of going to other planets is not necessarily a military task. I mean, we generally assume that there is some sort of rank and structure when Elon Musk is likely to lead something into space long before our government is. 
part of the premise of the movie, too, because the first ship to Altair IV wasn't a military vessel. It was a civilian exploration vessel. They were coming to find out, hey, what happened to those people? They never checked back in. Yeah. So that makes perfect sense as a military mission. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. As they're making their way to this planet, one of the things that jumped out to me was in stark contrast to some of the prevailing sci-fi that we have today, meaning Star Trek, which has a very planned humanism of the future and planned humanism of, I guess I should say, an idealized humanism of how we get to space. One of the first comments that they had about this alien planet is, the Lord sure makes beautiful worlds. Mm -hmm. And that this wasn't the same humanistic history that led to this point, uh, but was in fact really something that didn't feel out of place coming from the viewpoint of the 1950s, that there was at least a deistic undertone of the culture at the time. I haven't read a whole lot of fiction from that era. I know Asimov had a very theistic grounding to him. He wrote a commentary on the Bible, in fact. But how common was it in science fiction of that era to be atheistic, to be humanist? I should say this. I really can't say of the science fiction that was written at the time because there's so much that I have and haven't been exposed to. But there was a much broader cultural theism, or at least nominal theism, that could at least be relied upon. And I could see many of the authors, at least in terms of practical Christianity, that I have gone back to look at to do comparisons for, for my own studies in terms of cultural shifts in American culture and American religion. But I can say that there was at least a nominal theism that was understood to be the trend. Um, this is also the same time period where you have the insertion of certain theistic expressions, namely even with the Pledge of Allegiance. The Pledge of Allegiance mm -hmm. was altered in the 1950s to insert one nation under God. The under God was an afterthought that the culture wanted to make, or at least the Congress wanted to make that cultural theistic assertion. You're absolutely right. And, and speaking of this in specifically science fiction movies, I remembered that the next year, another great sci-fi movie came out, a sci-fi classic, The Incredible Shrinking Man. And in the character's final lines, he's giving this final soliloquy. And he talks about how the universe is God's silver tapestry spread across the night. And even though he's shrinking and he's questioning his own existence, he found that his fear was melting away and that he was smaller than the smallest, but that he meant something. And to God, there is no zero, that he still exists. So you're definitely right about undertones prevailing throughout that time. And then later on, uh, as we get into Star Trek, Roddenberry made a very specific and deliberate decision to exclude any religion from Star Trek. I don't know what his personal views were, but in terms of how he wanted Star Trek to be, he's like, there's not going to be any religion expressed in the show. And that was his decision that he made. A lot of science fiction has taken that cue from Roddenberry and just kind of carried it forward. But since Forbidden Planet predates that, that expectation would have been surprising, I think, to science fiction audiences at that time. Makes a lot of sense. Agreed. So they've landed on the planet. I said God does beautiful work, and I believe at that point, in the distance, they see something speeding at them at high velocity, which turns out to be 
a robot. Oh, yes. You have Robbie coming to speak to them. The C-3PO of the day and liquor dispenser. Love that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Man, C-3PO would have been so much more cool, much more mellow if he just had, you know, some 100 proof rum that could come out of his diodes. I don't know. I don't know if you could describe Robbie as mellow. Yeah, I mean, he had 180 languages and 180 proof whiskey. So, I mean, he's a cool guy. (laughs) And this is only 10 tons, no problem. Where is he getting the raw material? Like, see, here's the thing. The liquor doesn't show up until later in the movie, but you can tell clearly where my fixation is. Where does he get the raw materials? It's not the steel. Where does he get the molecules for the steel? I don't care. Where does he get all of the alcohol molecules to assemble together? Because he turns out to be pretty much a Star Trek replicator as well as a translator. My thought was, wasn't so much the alcohol, but where does he get exact copies of the bottles and the labels <laughs> to put the alcohol in? <laughs> he had to eat that too <laughs> gosh it's, you know that would it, he and bender could be such good buddies <laughs> one makes it one drinks it it's a symbiotic relationship well and obviously robbie was drinking it too because he was toasting the cook's health oh yes indeed. So was yeah. the cook's assertion we're speaking of the cook why in the heck was he on the bridge <laughs> In an apron. Why is there the need for an apron on the bridge of a starship? And it's like, okay, so maybe the ship is laid out in such a way as the entire crew is there and it's all just... So then why is the captain getting on a PA system to talk to them all when he can just turn around? Yeah, so and either the cook is on the bridge for some reason or the well, guy the, just really likes PA systems. The big globe at the center, which is their navigation system, that actually pops off and it's a big Mongolian style grill underneath right. it. <laughs> he cooks up for the entire crew at the same time. No, no, no. We have to plot our course correction around Delta Vega. Sorry, guys. It's 445. I got to get dinner started. <laughs> but Robbie, which I'm sure had to be just an incredible suit, i.e. tin can, to work in. Um, <laughs> and then they managed to escort the captain and select crew to the home of the surviving family. That scene jump out at you at all? The fact that the entire command staff just went willy-nilly with the unknown and strange robot off yeah. to unknown places. I mean, he seems like a good guy. Why not? He's making liquor. He's cool. (laughs) Everyone else died. I'm sure this guy's going (laughs) to play it straight. Well, at that point, they didn't know that everybody else had died. That's true. Uh, And they did all have their sidearms, and they were sitting behind the robot, so maybe they thought they were safe enough. And they did have, they're each armed with, it's a disintegration beam. It's like a phaser set on max. They're probably thinking they're okay. So if there are survivors, we can take care of that. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and then we see the beautiful 1950s future plantation. Looks like it could have come out of the Hollywood Hills. With the inexplicable petrified fish in front. I forgot about the fish. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember the fish, I'll be honest. Interesting decoration choices. And that's when we meet Dr. Morbius, which is the best name for a character in that time period. See, on all of my first-person shooters, I am now changing my username from Tumble Dry Low to Dr. Morbius. <laughs> no, no, you should make it an amalgamation of the two. Tumble Dry Morbius. I've already got that trademarked. <laughs> that sounds like a Deadlands character. Yeah, this is the thing, though, is that at this point in the film, did, did either of you start to think anything about the pacing or even start to get curious about it? In terms of, this is moving kind of plotting. 
I think at that point I was trying to remember when it was the first time I saw the movie on TV mm. and whether it was in black and white or color. Well, and I was still trying to decide whether or not Robbie was supposed to be Caliban because <laughs> I'd, I'd known that the movie was loosely based on The Tempest and it turned out to be a lot more loosely than I had expected. <laughs> and, you know, you see the, the poster and you've got the robot carrying Alta and it looks... Pretty menacing. Menacing, yeah. And then you get to the end of the movie and you realize the robot was that good guy the whole time. Why Why did I think he was going to go nuts and kill everybody? Because <laughs> I was like... Because it's the 50s. I was 50s, waiting for that to happen. That's what robots movie. do. Well, here's the thing about Robbie. I got to say, when he was introduced, he said that they, and I quote, that he was forbidden from harming rational beings, which I thought to be... Yeah, a- that's Chekhov's gun. <laughs> yeah. They mentioned that he can't harm rational beings. That means at some point he's going to harm a rational being. Right. You know, I thought that it was just an interesting parallel rather than saying I am forbidden to harm human beings, which is so far the only thing. That's all we've seen. Yeah, the only thing that we've ever seen in this film. But he still takes a line out of Immanuel Kant's second formulation of the categorical imperative that he shouldn't harm a rational being. Actually, Kant didn't say harm. He said use as a mere means. But, you know, we won't get too much into that. (laughs) I think at some point that the Morbius even mentions that he was programmed around the laws of robotics. He didn't mention Asimov, but I believe that he makes some allusion to the three laws in the scene when he's talking about Robbie. It would have been a little early to make an overt reference to the laws of robotics because they were still fairly new minted at that point. I mean, Asimov was writing at that time. I think iRobot was in the 50s. And so the audience would not have had that shortcut to jump ahead and know what the, oh, the laws of robotics is what he's talking about. That makes sense. And you don't want to spend half the movie explaining robots to people. So just give them the first law and let it go. It's funny because they spend not just a half the movie explaining something, but it really takes the entire film to explain what the film is about. Apparently, Morbius is so starved for talking to people and showing how smart he is, he spends the entire movie explaining, how dare you come into my house? Let me tell you all about it. How dare you come into my study? Let me show you all of these cool alien things. Yeah, you never have the reveal of the setting and what we would expect with our contemporary idea of pacing. There is the reveal of the setting. Then there is the slow buildup of tension. Then there is the aha moment, like, oh, I see what the real enemy is. And now rush, 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 fight, 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 fight. Okay, it's a good thing that we overcame. It didn't ever bore me watching the film, but it just really struck me that we are taking just baby steps in showing the setting and setting up who the villain is. It's 22 minutes until we actually see what sort of threat we're facing. And then at 40 minutes in, we get to see from the threat's perspective. Keep in mind, the director of this film, Fred Wilcox, he also brought us such great movies a decade before as Lassie Come Home and Courage of Lassie. <laughs> well, I think what one of the things that he was trying to do was to keep us in the dark as to what Morbius's role in the movie was because he kind of bounces back and forth between the the villain and the wise old man and you're never quite sure which side of that he's going to come down on all while trying to squeeze in beloved and caring father (laughs) right while all the Uh, men are trying to blame his daughter for being a woman yes right yeah can we talk about that for just a second i mean because i doubt it i bet we'd be talking about that for several minutes (laughs) (laughs) i dare you to keep it at a second but continue 
super uncomfortable. Like you knew it was you knew it was a thing. Unfortunately, it still happens. Like how dare you? And he was literally saying that. How dare you dress the way that you do when it's just you and your father? <laughs> just, there was literally nobody else around. How dare you dress in your daily dress as I parade a bunch of men in front of you? And I mean, it was just baffling that not only does he say such things, but then she goes to alter her wardrobe to please this person who has been nothing but nasty to her mm-hmm. and shoots her tiger. And she does not react to that. To go on a little bit of a rabbit trail from this, I'd like to come back to it, but what did you think was the reason that the tiger attacked? I assumed that when the tiger attacked, that it was because whatever was turning this planet against the, I don't want to call them invaders, but these intruders. Well, to Morbius and to his psyche, not to jump ahead, but to his id, they were invaders. They were, that whatever it was that had turned this planet hostile had rubbed off on the tiger. And the tiger was picking up on this planetary threat, this nebulous thing. And it was taken over by the same force. And it drove its hostility to lash out. In retrospect, knowing the end, and spoilers from this thing that came out, you know, over It's been half 60 years. Ago. If you haven't seen it yet, it's your fault. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, that it's his unconscious aggression that is being manipulated by the planet's psychokinetic machinery and driving the tiger against the captain and really, I guess, at some point against his daughter. And I don't think that that's inconsistent. I mean, if he has unconscious aggression towards his daughter for going and smooching on all of these people Mm -hmm. that are parading on by, yeah, there's going to be some internal conflict. And though he still loves her, if he unconsciously is feeling that aggression and it comes out in the form of that tiger lashing out, then it seems consistent. Speaking of that, that kind of rubbed me wrong. The whole, well, here's the professor's daughter. Of course she's beautiful. And of course she's going to smooch with half the guys on the ship or two of the guys on the ship. Of course she'll be interested in doing that. And of course they'll want to do it with her because that's what happens. It's the 50s. Yeah. Yeah, that is a very and interesting point. The fact that one guy did, okay, fine. These guys, as I said, they're military. They've been on a ship for a while. But then when the, the captain who just berated his crewmen and berated her, as you were going on about for doing that, what does he do? He turns right around and is doing the exact same thing himself. Well, it's because he wanted to take possession of her instead of letting one of the men have her. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what the woman is for on screen. Which... And the scene where that kind of comes together was when you see her swimming in a pond. And when I first watched that, I kind of did a double take because it looks like she is swimming in the buff. Later on, you see that, okay, she's wearing a a bodysuit, but they're conveying that she is skinny dipping. And I'm like, wait, this, this got on film in the 50s? Well, it does more than imply that. Well, yeah, it does imply that she's skinny dipping because he said, I didn't bring my swimsuit. And she says, you don't need one. Well, I think she's like, what's a swimsuit <laughs> or something yeah. like that. And as soon as he hears that, he like turns right around and walks away. So, yeah, you're right. They're pretty overt with that. And the movie was banned in Spain. Really? Yeah. I can see yeah. That. Mostly because of the miniskirts, though. <laughs> I'm yep. sure the swimming scene didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta say, also, one of the things that stood out to me while I was watching it is, where'd they get the tiger? But then, fortunately, that was later explained. Well, now, it was explained, but I don't think that what Morbius said was correct. 
What was it that he said? I mean, I just have it in my he notes. He claimed that, that the Krell had traveled throughout the galaxy and brought these creatures back. Mm. But they did that 2,000 centuries ago. Do we really think that the ecosystem of an alien planet would have preserved these creatures the way they were for 200,000 years? Do you think that it was then a manifestation of again, the psychokinetic abilities of the planet that think. form around... around and I think that's there. why the tiger suddenly attacked, because it was a manifestation of Morbius's expectations. I find it very interesting that when the daughter goes outside, when Altera goes outside, when I first saw the deer and then the tiger, why is no one questioning that there's a deer and a tiger on an alien planet? Yeah, that was my first thought. <laughs> what, what, what are they doing here? This is another planet. And Adams is just like, oh, it's a tiger. Yeah, he's not questioning it. <laughs> you can order anything on Amazon in the future. <laughs> if there were life forms on this planet, wouldn't they? Yeah, so that just kind of stood out to me. But I was wondering if the tiger's sudden change in personality wasn't due to Morbius's aggression, his anger, but maybe the new element in the world was, hey, we've got all these other guys who know what tigers are supposed to act like, and maybe it was their expectations. Maybe it was oh. Adam's expectation that this is how tigers behave that caused the world to reprogram the tiger. That's an interesting idea, assuming that they can have an influence on the machinery. Well, the machinery, it was used by all of the Krell. It was influenced by all the Krell. That's why they mm -hmm. all wiped out. But at that point the human crew, were they intelligent enough or had their minds boosted enough to actually be able to influence the machine? Or would it just be like a blanket effect? Would it be affected by anyone on the planet? I think that's an excellent question. I mean, I assumed that only those that had been in contact with the machinery were the ones that were able to have an influence on the planet. But that's just that an assumption. My thought mm -hmm. on the tiger was that not only was it Morbius's inner hostility towards the crew, but also his unrealized resentment towards his own daughter because he saw the beginnings of her wanting a different life. And I think that's the popular interpretation based on stuff that I've read as I was uh, studying the film. But it never felt right to me that, okay, well, suddenly the tiger is hostile because she's giving away her virtue. But, you know, that it, it was the 50s, so maybe that was exactly what the filmmakers intended. It was after the tiger jumped at them and it was disintegrated in mid-jump, which for the day, nice special effect. Mm -hmm. And he's apologizing. I'm sorry you had to see that. Like, I'm not I'm sorry I had to do that. Not I'm yeah. sorry I killed your <laughs> sorry own I tiger. Sorry I killed Yeah, the scene after that also kind of stuck me wrong. Dude, you just killed her friend. Thank and you. all he said was, I'm sorry you had to see that. And she... The proper response, I thought, would have been turning around and smacking the crud out of him. But she just accepts it. Yeah, she's like very calm. He didn't recognize me. Really? Interesting line to say. <laughs> Interesting take on that. The tiger didn't recognize her. And that she's just so, so chill about it. I'll have Robbie make another one. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a figment of Dad's imagination anyway. Not terribly upset he vaporized her tiger. <laughs> And that's why you don't see the deer again, because he saw what happened to the tiger, and he's laying low. <laughs> but finally, he can breathe easy and free. He no longer has an apex predator roaming around his house. Right. So by this point, the pace is being set by the slow explanation of the setting and backstory. We have 30 to 40 minutes left of the story, about two-thirds of the way through. And then the creature attacks. 
And I actually have to say that I thought that this scene was brilliantly executed because we have the tension being built by never seeing the monster. And even then, we still only get to see it in the electrical effects and the energy effects. And so we get to see it in silhouette. We get to see it in outline. Just for a flash, just for a moment. Right. Leaving the most of it to the viewer's imagination as to what this terrible beast quote-unquote, really looks like. And I loved the practical effect that they use of the footprints appearing in the ground and then the steps up the spaceship being slowly crushed. As it, it probably costs them a few hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. But any filmmaker doing that today would do it all in CG and it would cost 20000 But it looked so <laughs> good. And like you said, Mike, added to the tension it's invisible but there's something there and it's big and it's coming and as this thing it it turns out to be the monsters from the id honestly i think that that's really kind of a especially for its time being absolutely brilliant that the problem that we're having is just a manifestation of psychoanalysis really (laughs) that especially in the 1950s, psychoanalysis was far more common than it is today, that this would have been a commonly understood idea. Because now we have a bigger budget for special effects for actual monsters. They don't need to be internal anymore. We can make the big bad from Altair 7 and no need for all of that introspection. Yeah. So here's the question. If we're going to remake this monster today, how do you think they do it? Well, first, you have to bring back CG Leslie Nielsen. (laughs) You know what? I think that, no, we need to have Leslie Nielsen, not even CG. Just bring him on. Wait, is he still alive? No, he died. I think he did. he? 2010. Oh. Scratch that. Okay. Yeah, they do a CG Leslie Nielsen. Um, (laughs) It's going to be like Grand Moff Tarkin, and everybody's going to be unsatisfied. No, no, this could have been an entirely different movie. Weekend at Forbidden Planet. (laughs) (laughs) Forbidden Planet, id and loving it. (laughs) I think that if we did this film today, we would have an irresistible desire to show the monster in all of its CG glory. Mm -hmm. And no offense to some of the brilliant work that's done with CG, that there's something satisfying about having just enough of the monster to your imagination and without well, you, having the chance of an effect shot gone wrong to spoil you it for you. always rob something from a film when you show the monster. Mm-hmm. Can you think of a movie or a TV show where they've hidden the monster, they've hidden the monster, they finally reveal it, and you're not disappointed? I'll need to rewatch Jaws. <laughs> I remember watching Tremors and being satisfied with the reveal, but that, again, I think I would have to... Maybe that's something that I need to take another look at. Was it worth it? Yeah, and Tremors is kind of more of a comedy. It's also kind of a 1950s creature movie. Yeah, but I think of Stranger Things. You get to the very end, and there's the Demogorgon in the classroom. You're like, oh, well... (laughs) Because it was scary all the way up until that point. I thought the same thing about the Cloverfield monster from the first Mm -hmm. movie. The fact that the glimpses that you saw, the flashes, those were scary. The debris and the destruction left in its wake was terrifying. But then when you actually see it in its full glory, it's not all that glory. You kind of lose us something. Yeah. And I think there would definitely be a temptation to, okay, let's see the monster now. And you'd lose me for sure. 
I'd say, oh, you know what? It was better when it was just some kind of a weird invisible effect and we were seeing what it's doing, but not the monster itself. But I think that most modern filmmakers would not be able to resist the temptation of, look at my CG. And this coming from the guy whose bread and butter is CG. Mm -hmm. Oh, and speaking as a CG artist, it is way easier to do effects in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) You put visual effects in bright sunlight, and it is difficult and expensive. But you do it in the dark, and you can make it look pretty much any which way you want? Yeah. The more you're relying on the viewer's hindbrain, the more persuasive a visual effect is going to be. That's just my opinion, but Makes I'm a sure lot Phil of Tippett would agree. Mm-hmm. A lot of times what we come up with in our own brain is scarier than exactly. what is actually out there. Well, it's because we know what terrifies us. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But let's get to when they actually do reveal the monster. Okay, yeah. Um, Fire all forward cannons and kick up the Electronet, and there it is. Or were you talking about the what we saw, what it really was? No, no. For when it shows us in that brief moment of special effect glory. Yeah. Once again, for being 1956, I thought that was a pretty cool effect. Mm-hmm. I think for 1960s, it was a pretty cool effect. And now you see the monster come in all of its monstrous, almost demonic, inhuman glory. Roaring and screaming and just standing there while it takes the brunt of all of this destructive force being sent its way. Yeah. How did that scene come off to you, Brian? I thought it was too long. The effects themselves, through the lens of, hey, this was 1956, looked fantastic. If it were being done today, I would say, hey, let's throw some interactive light on the ground on the actors so it looks like there's something there. But mostly I thought they lingered on this shot too long and let us really look at it, and they should not have done that. Mm. Part of that being too long, I thought they made some very stupid, stupid decisions writing-wise. Okay, it's dangerous. We get it. There's one scene where the first officer sees the monster, and he decides to advance forward. And I'm like, why? That was just (laughs) done to show us that this creature, while invisible and being shot, could still kill. It was not a tactical decision. No. It was was a dumb right. And that's why the people in the 50s weren't stupid. Many of those people had just been through a war. And you know that there's a time to advance and a time to not. If you see a... (laughs) And when your artillery is shooting at something, you don't advance on it. (laughs) Exactly. If you're shooting at something with enough firepower to literally reduce a mountain to ashes... Why, in your mind, would you think, I'm going to get closer. That'll work. Bayonet charge. Because he didn't have his daughter to tell him the range is hot. Yes. (laughs) See, once again, I could have pointed to my five-year-old who has more sense than that. And they also had to give Alta the opportunity to completely not react to his death. Mm, Yes, excellent point. (laughs) Which brings up the point. If he had not kissed her, probably wouldn't have died. (laughs) Those are the rules. Yeah. I did like that line when he was trying to, this is how we do things on Earth, and he kisses her, and she's like, that's it? Yes, that's strange. Oh, don't stop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that reminds me when I kissed my wife for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Huh, that's weird. I didn't say stop. I didn't say it was good either, but, you know, don't stop. Got nothing better to do. There's room for improvement. So my thought was, I thought this even as a kid, the big monster comes, hits the electro fence, 
They're shooting it with artillery, disintegration beams, their little rifles. If it could take all that, why did it stop? Well, because Morbius woke up. Is that when he woke mm-hmm. up? Okay. That was when Alta came in and he was slumped over on his desk and she woke him up. It wasn't connected very well. I think there was a little bit too much space between Monster Disappears and Morbius Wakes Up because I think we had a little bit of conversation right after amongst the crew. They should have maybe intercut. That would have explained the connection better because even as a kid thinking they've shot it, it's not hurting it. Why doesn't it just keep walking on through? But Morbius waking up at that moment, okay, that would have made sense. Yeah, that was just confusing editing, I think. Okay, so Morbius wakes up, we revisit him, and then we find out that humanity is the monster all along. (laughs) After being shown, once again, as we have to give Morbius one more chance to explain things. (laughs) How dare you come into my study, my private chambers? Let me show you some stuff. (laughs) The way he goes from one attitude and emotion to the next, I just found a little jarring. Well, you know, that is actually one thing that maybe it did pick up from The Tempest, because Prospero acts just like that. Yeah, that's true. I haven't read The Tempest. (laughs) You can probably skip it. It's not very good. Okay, thanks. (laughs) But yeah, the way he goes from indignation, how dare you gentlemen do this, to now I will explain to you exactly how this works, and the innermost secrets of this planet. Dude, show some consistency here. See, this is another manifestation of unconscious conflict. He wants to be angry at these people, but he also wants them to love him for how brilliant he is. So he's going to blow up at them, but he's also going to be, and now let me give the reason to do it again. It's been a long time since he's had a chance to play show and tell. So he's making up for lost time. And having come up of a conversation of Babylon 5 just a little bit ago, the visual similarities between the great machine on epsilon three and the krell's immense structure i thought was certainly uh straczynski says he deliberately didn't want to reference forbidden planet but apparently the visual effects artists had other ideas yeah that was not lost on me when i watched that episode just a few days ago and the fact that it's being mentally controlled by one individual mm-hmm. yeah Sorry, those are directly related. (laughs) Sorry, Straczynski, we don't quite believe you. Yeah. Next, you'll tell us that you've never read Lord of the Rings. (laughs) And for people who are once again shaking their head going, what does he mean by that? Just watch B5, read Lord of the Rings. If you haven't yet, why are you listening to this podcast? (laughs) But continuing on. So the monster has come, the monster has gone. And now they've been shown that the entire planet is a year 2385 iMac computer. (laughs) Where do we go from there? I think that what we have is we have the ship's doctor sticks his head in the machine and understands everything immediately. And then the monster starts coming for them all. Mm -hmm. And And then Captain uh, Adams leaps to a correct conclusion from faulty data. It's you. You're the one doing this. And he seems to accept that pretty readily. I mean, a couple of lines, like, no, no, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess I am my own enemy. Gosh, you know, if psychoanalysis was this easy, people wouldn't continue paying their analysts for weeks and months and years. Yeah, because you're right. Boiled down, that conversation was, it's not me, it is you. You're right. You make a compelling argument. (laughs) Which I think, again, shows some of its influences on later cinema. 
Uh, if you remember the theatrical release, slightly edited from the video release of Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. Turn to the dark side. Oh, no, I couldn't possibly. Turn to the dark side. Now that you put it that way. <laughs> that okay. does sound pretty good. But at this point, you've already taken the movie on, what, an hour and 45 minutes? Drawing this out through another few weeks of analysis probably <laughs> won't help him resolve that unconscious conflict. Yeah. Maybe they explain this in the movie. If they did, I missed it. Why is it that Morbius survived using the machine, but everyone else died? Well, there was no one else to have conflict with. I mean, other than... Oh, so you're saying it's plot-driven. They didn't explain it away. No, I don't think that they explained it away. I think they left it in the subtext that everyone else wanted to leave. He and his daughter wanted to stay. So therefore, the brain-boosting machine just knocked him for a loop, didn't kill him. Well, I think that once his unconscious had eliminated all of the others to the point of isolation, he didn't have that conflict with the other colonists that wanted to take him away from his research in this planet. Now, why that didn't eventually turn against his daughter, because apparently it was a very loving and happy relationship with no problem, no conflict at all whatsoever, yeah, I don't know. And another question, if his daughter was as exceptional as he claimed that she was, did he ever let her use the brain-boosting machine? I think that is answered in some of the subtext of 1950s cinema. She's a girl. It's not her job to have her brain boosted. It's her job to wear the, uh, miniskirts. Wear the miniskirts, play with tigers. And change your appearance when a man tells you to. Yes. <laughs> If any of you listeners cannot tell when tongue is thoroughly in cheek, <laughs> tongue now, is thoroughly in cheek. Here's something that I just thought of. How do we know that Alta is a real person? Oh. Morbius doesn't really treat her like a real person. Okay, question. Wouldn't she have disappeared, though, the moment that the... No, she wasn't a hologram. She was actually a real-life flesh-and-blood creature, so... Yeah, like the tiger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she wouldn't have disappeared. This is in the holodeck. She wouldn't have disappeared when the planet blew. Um, I could see her being real because Morbius strikes me as someone, even among other scientists, he did not have the greatest interpersonal skills to begin with. Right, which leads me to wonder, he really got it on with one of the other scientists on the ship? Somebody looked at this guy and said, he's a catch. Maybe depending on what the other scientists look like. That's probably true, yeah. <laughs> That just, that just occurred to me to wonder. It's like, maybe she was another manifestation of the machine. That would be a fascinating, fascinating dynamic if that were the case. And I don't know, maybe maybe that wasn't a, a question we were intended to ask because Adams did immediately challenge him on, you weren't listed as being married on this crew. Mm. And did he say that he got married on the flight to on the, the planet? Flight there, yeah. yeah. Which apparently takes more than a year or so. One other question that occurs to me to wonder is, why did they have a linguist on this colony mission? I think that was just kind of showing off their sci-fi-ness that they can have a robot that speaks so many other languages. <laughs> or maybe somebody knew that there was a Krell civilization there to begin with. Yeah. Another point of disbelief, because obviously there's not enough. <laughs> Single dad with a daughter, there's not nearly enough arts and crafts projects around that house <laughs> to justify us believing that he raised a girl. Um, more evidence that she's manufactured. Yeah, that's why I'm, I'm leaning more towards Brian's reading of this film, that she is a manifestation of his unconscious desires. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, I think that nails it. 
Where's the Crayola-drawn pictures on the fridge? Where's the stuff with handprints and glitter and decoupage and... Macaroni sculptures. Exactly. Where's the princess? Okay, and here's the other thing. If the planet was being influenced by everybody there, it wouldn't have been a tiger. It'd have been a unicorn. Unicorn, yeah. That's why I think it's only Mobius. To which I'm going to say again, why not a unicorn, Morbius? (laughs) I'm going to have to pause this, this this podcast for just a second because my daughter always begs me for a unicorn like daddy you said that you'd give me the first unicorn you see you said that you'd give me the first unicorn you'd see and just the other day i said all right sweetheart not only will i give you a unicorn i will give you all the unicorns down to the very last and you can keep them in the sea guarded by the fierce red bull that now movie, how do you feel? The movie creeped me out when I was a kid. Yeah, made it good. <laughs> I love that we've put a Last Unicorn reference in our discussion of Forbidden Planet. <laughs> That's one that I haven't seen. Oh, gosh. Read the book. Seriously. I read that book to my kids. We'll talk about that one later. So, moving on. Morbius has been confronted with the realization that the monster, which is burning its way through pure adamantium is his id and he tries to stop it and the figment of his imagination and the man she fell in love with because they argued are there as well and where do we go from there oh just downhill yeah <laughs> no i mean now it, the it, sorcerer has died so his castle blows up yeah, yeah i mean this movie didn't really have a climax so the tension builds it finally has another reveal then the tension is i mean it's more ratcheted up then there you go after he died i was half expecting for him to have left them a voicemail as they were flying away explaining how it was actually (laughs) him who caused it and now what was going to happen to the planet and what mankind should do in the future. One last explanation from Dr. Morbius. So did you like the movie? I did. I did too. Because we griped a lot. I mean, (laughs) I mean a lot. And not that I take any word of it back, but I mean, generally speaking, for an afternoon's watch, I would say that it wasn't a bad flick. There were a lot of things I enjoyed about it. I enjoyed the look. I enjoyed the feel. Problems and critiques aside, I also thought it was fun. It had some genuinely humorous moments, mostly around the cook and his alcohol and the robot. (laughs) And there were several times I actually thought that the dialogue was smartly written. See, and I think that even as much as I kind of rolled my eyes when, and humanity was the monster all along, I mean, at least it was done in a creative fashion. Yes. They took a trope, they put a twist on it, and I think it was a good twist to put on that trope. Mm -hmm. The production design, I thought, was was really fantastic for this movie. I spent the first little bit of it thinking, okay, well, we got some matte paintings, and then the camera started moving around, and I'm like, they can't move the camera in a matte painting shot. They used this entire warehouse-sized soundstage. They filled an entire soundstage with one set, and they had this huge cyclorama, just painted backdrop, and then they put the rocks in front of it. It's like you had guys standing way in the background, and it's all in in camera one shot. At the time, in terms of what science fiction shows were doing and what other big shows were doing, that was a huge expense and a huge logistical nightmare, I'm sure, to try and get that set lit it really showed how much they were dedicated to making a beautiful film and it was gorgeous and you can see so much science fiction borrowing from that look ever since and in comparison to what people do these days i mean 
modern filmmakers are just lazy. Sometimes they don't even fully understand in their own brains what they want to see on the screen. They just, well, okay, I'll throw a green screen back there and we'll figure it out later. But to do Forbidden Planet, you had to really be planning. And maybe the camera work wasn't quite as steady as I would have liked to see. And Hitchcock was doing some beautifully smooth moves around the same time. Smooth move, Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah. But these camera moves tended to be a little bit wobbly at times. But just the fact that they could do a move on something that I initially thought was a matte painting shot. I was kind of floored for the first 20 minutes of the movie, realizing what they were doing and trying to pick it apart. 60 years later, I can't tell where the cyclorama stops and the real ground begins. So, good job, guys. Yeah. Well, I think that's going to wrap up our discussion on Forbidden Planet. I enjoyed watching it again, and I think that we had talked about doing this more. I think we had a couple of other classic sci-fi movies that we had discussed wanting to watch and discuss on the podcast. I love this idea, especially when we can use it as a jumping board from discussing classic science fiction to modern science fiction, which we're going to do here in a moment. We're going to keep doing this. And listeners, if there is a classic science fiction movie that you think we should add to the list, let us know. Shoot us an email, comment on Facebook. Let us know what you would like to hear us discuss. I'll say this, uh, classic or nostalgic, sci-fi or fantasy. I like yes. that idea. Yeah. Put it up. So that was our look backwards, and one movie that is an, an excellent piece of modern science fiction, um, that is an excellent modern science fiction movie experience is we've all seen Solo, a Star Wars story. And in the interest of time, because I know we're already running long, how about we just hit the highlights of it and take it from there? I'll say it. A lot of my friends disagree with me, but here it is. As a science fiction heist film, I liked it better than Rogue One. I think that the plot had a lot more focus on where it was going. I thought that the screenwriting, while it is not going to be classic science fiction in any stretch of the imagination, it was a fun romp through the world, and I enjoyed it. I think that we had a much better focus on direct plot and more clear motivations than we had in Rogue One, and I hope that if the motivations continue to remain clear and the plot as focused in future Star Wars films. I agree almost completely. I don't want to say absolutely completely because I don't want to make it sound like I'm just jumping on what you said, <laughs> but Rogue One felt like a Star Wars movie to me, a little darker and gritty even more so than some of the original Star Wars films. But I think it did a great job of introducing the character of Han. It felt very Star Wars-y to me. And the only slight, slight gripe I had was that it introduced a lot of defining character aspects in a very short amount of time. Yeah. First, you get his name. Then he gets his blaster. Then he gets his lifelong partner. Then he meets his other buddy. Then he gets his ship. And it's like boom, 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 one after the other. And then he gets his dice. Yeah. I really hope we get another solo movie. I think there's two more contracted. I know that them being made has been brought into question because of the box office return. Mm -hmm. But I hope they get made. And I hope they're just as good as this one because I really enjoyed it. Alden... Heinrich? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Ald I thought Aldrin did a fantastic job. I think he really captured the character pretty well. I agree. He wasn't trying to be Harrison Ford. He was trying to be young Han Solo. Yeah, not trying to be Harrison Ford is a solid move. Did either of you listen to the Star Wars radio drama? Yes. No. The first one? Yeah. Yes, I did, actually. Perry King was not Harrison Ford. 
he was his own Han Solo, and I appreciated it for that fact. I don't think that this actor was quite as talented as either of those individuals, but... Well, that's a high bar, so... <laughs> right, but at least I don't think his acting was so poor that it was distracting or anything. And speaking of actors capturing the essence, absolutely loved Donald Glover as mm -hmm. Lando Calrissian. It's because you loved him as, okay, first of all, he did a phenomenal job being the Lando Calrissian that Billy D. Williams brought to the screen. And I think the reason why everyone loved him is because he did a recreation of that character as portrayed by Billy D. Williams. I think it was a smart move for the movie. I think it worked well on screen. But I think this is one of the difficult things with prequels is that anytime you are making a story about familiar characters. What you're doing is you're judging the film based on a previous performance, and there's a lot weighted on that. And I really think that Star Wars will do well if they decide to move away from familiar characters and create consistent stories, clear motivations, solid performances that don't hinge so much on nostalgia. Mm -hmm. But again, it's a nostalgia franchise right now. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, as we're seeing a lot, nostalgia is kind of become the current trend with a lot that we've seen coming out of Hollywood. Yeah. Well, Brian, what was your take on the film? I thought it was a pretty solid heist movie. As science fiction, I could take it or leave it. But I would definitely put it up there with Ocean's Eleven or the heist in terms of, hey, this is a great crime movie. I thought maybe they tried to cram a little bit, like James said, too much of this is Han Solo's history all into one place. It would have been nice to have the promise of some of that in the future. Right. I would have liked it better if the second movie had been about Han getting the Falcon. Right. Instead of just a tag at the end of this one. Exactly. And I don't know. It seemed like a lot of the points that they hit were just a little bit too expected because we know about Han Solo already. And so it's not really surprising. Oh, there's Chewbacca. We know what's going to happen. He's going to rescue him. So I would have liked to have seen a few more story points that weren't things that we already knew about Han Solo. I did like how they introduced Han and Chewie to each other. Mm -hmm. He gets... I won't get too much into it. I don't want us to. Have, have we given away a lot of spoilers for this movie yet? It's it, been out a month. Okay, you know, yeah, I'm and, not even going to worry about it then. And like I said, we already know what happened to Han Solo in A New Hope. So it's, it's not like there's a whole lot of spoilers, except for one that we haven't mentioned. So yeah. but, I'll mention it. Putting in Darth Maul was dope. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of okay with it. I go back and forth on that one. I want to see where they go with it. I'm going to reserve judgment. I think where they're My going with it problem. is down a shaft after it was cut in half. Well, they already <laughs> <laughs> well, they established in the Clone Wars cartoon and the Star Wars Rebels cartoon that Darth Maul survived. They yeah, see, and that's my problem. They established a hand wavium in another yeah. medium. Yeah. Not the problem the is that if you got Darth Maul with his robot legs in this movie, that means that all of that nonsense with Yoda traveling to the center of the Force is also something that we might see. And I really don't want that to be any part of Star Wars, because that was just dumb. Well, you know, there's lots of parts of Star Wars that we have always considered dumb. A yes, lot of it got kicked true. out with the old canon. But there's still a lot of it that exists, and we're going to have to take true. the good with the bad. Yeah. But, yeah, there was Darth Maul. I, and one thing I liked was that this movie, for someone who is Star Wars geeky like I am, there were a ton of little Easter eggs peppered all throughout this flick. 
I loved the Raiders of the Lost Ark idol right there in the office. Yes. See, I missed it. I knew it was there, but by the time I remembered, oh, I was supposed to look for that. I think it was gone already. Yeah. I saw that, and I saw the Mandalorian armor. I think there's supposed to be another Easter egg that's in his little treasure room, but I don't recall it. I love when the character of Kira, when they're doing the heist and she beats up one of the miners, and Woody Harrelson's character, how'd you do that? He's like, oh, I was taught Teres Kali, which is the name of a Star Wars martial art, which was the title of a horrible PlayStation video game. Think Tekken with Star Wars characters, and it's horrible. I remember that show. I remember that, that game. Yeah. I played I, it like a couple times in demo. Same here. I had the demo disc, which let me play as Luke Skywalker and one other character. And it was magnificently horrible. <laughs> and if I hit someone with a lightsaber, they're supposed to be cut in half, not take off one sixteenth of their life. So they brought that in in a humorous way, which I loved. The only thing I'm going to say about one of the antagonists, Infus Nest, who's like the leader of the bandits... Very cool character design. My first thought was, why is one of the fallen captains from Destiny 2 in Star Wars? I mean, like, wait a minute. I just like the fact that we got to see Warwick Davis with a heavy weapon. So, you know, I'm good. (laughs) We could just leave it at that. Warwick Davis with a heavy weapon. A Star Wars story. (laughs) What did you guys think of Paul Bettany? You know, it was driving me crazy. I was trying to figure out who he was the first few minutes he was on screen like oh got it so i kind of (laughs) totally missed his introduction because i was trying to place him gotcha but he was really really Mm -hmm. good i like it i like him a lot i've heard some people who have when they saw woody harrelson on the screen that it kind of took them out like oh this doesn't feel like a star wars story anymore i thought he did great he did fine i thought as a mentor to a young han who kind of shows him the ropes a little bit and kind of helps mold the kind of character that Han is going to be. I thought he did great. So, we had classic sci-fi. We had modern sci-fi. We'll keep it up. And I think that that is going to take us to the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Okay, uh, I think that I can sum up this week's strategy. The plan that I've got for this week can be summed up in savoring. Savoring or savoring? Savoring, with a V, as in Victor, because... Some people will be shooting, some people will be chewing, and I'm just going to enjoy every bite of this apocalypse. <laughs> just, just every bite I take of you, James, is going to be my clouded eyes just roll back. It's so good. This is officially the creepiest one we've done. <laughs> so basically your zombie apocalypse plan of the week is to just give in and look at it from the other side join the zombie apocalypse yeah if you can't beat them just just join in just yeah so tasty (laughs) i'm laughing to keep from cringing as i said a few weeks ago that i have like a backup plan that is like if i've got no other ideas but i'll only use it as a last resort what you call a backup plan, most other people would look at utter, complete failure. <laughs> you know, this. I'm going to give one final point. This last E3, we saw a lot of like post-apocalyptic game trailers. There was Fallout 76, Generation Zero, Metro 2. There was also a trailer for The Last of Us 2. And we do the zombie apocalypse plan of the week every episode. I would love to see a video game. Or a movie, or I think a TV series would be even better, 
where it's not the beginnings of the apocalypse. It's not, it still would be considered post-apocalyptic. We're not just trying to survive. We're not trying to get by, trying to live. But a game, a movie, or a series, the apocalypse has happened. We've gotten through it. Let's rebuild. Let's actually push the apocalypse back. Let's bring back some society. Let's make life happen again. Oh, man, that would have been such a great Sim City. (laughs) Yeah. Whether it's zombies, whether it's robots, monsters, aliens, or a horrific combination of all of the above. Okay, fine. All these things have happened. We're done with it. It's time to roll up our sleeves and rebuild. Let's bring society back. I like it. Time to wrap it up. We want to thank everyone for listening in to the Geek at Arms podcast. I want to encourage you to go check us out at our website, geekatarms.com, facebook.com slash geekatarms. If you listen to us through iTunes, leave us a review. It'll help us out. Let us know what you think. And so, from Brian, Mike, and James, we want to say be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at facebook.com forward slash geek at arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.